Well, hey, if you're just uh, joining us now in our sermon series, we are preaching through 1 Peter, uh, the short letter in the New Testament. And before I get too much further into it, I want to say hello to you at home. Uh, sometimes you can feel cut off from the rest of the community when you're at home or traveling or wherever. And I want you to know how important you are to us and how uh, we are glad that you can join us in this way. And we hope and pray that sometime in the future when you feel safe, you'll be able to join us here uh, and we can all be together. But it's a weird time we've been in and we're thankful to you at home for being part of our church. So keep it up and we love you. Okay, this sermon series is called Living as Exiles. And uh, as I mentioned, it's from 1 Peter. And as a lead into the text, I wanna tell you a short story. Back in September, I took some study leave something you are gracious to give us as pastors, and we can go and, and uh, replenish our souls for a period of time and learn and grow. And I chose to drive my car up to Montana and to go visit John and Valerie Hess. Uh, here's a picture of John and me. Uh, there we are drinking something, I made probably coffee or something. Um, and um, John looks the same, he's doing great, Valerie's doing great. They live in Lolo, Montana. John was here at this church for 31 years. He's one of my closest friends and I, time with John is, is nourishing to my soul. And so John and I were able to talk and pray and hike and bike ride and just be together and it was so wonderful. They were great hosts to me. And during that time I, I read some of Eugene Peterson who's been a, a nourishing influence too, including this biography that's just been released on Eugene's life. Um, let's have a look at that. It's called A Burning in My Bones. And uh, you know, when I look at that picture, it just reminds me of John Hess, doesn't it? It kind of almost looks like John Hess a little bit. But this is a marvelous uh, biography on the life of Eugene Peterson, who's been a pastor to us pastors, many of us, and has ministered to so many. Of course, Eugene Peterson is known for his translation of the Bible, The Message. And uh, today we're going to read from the message. Now, I don't always advocate doing this, but Eugene Peterson has done a marvelous job with our passage, and it just literally pops. And so I want to read today's text in the message. So let's take a look at it. Peter writes, Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. You've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. Listen to the message. It was preached to those believers who are now dead, and yet even though they died, just as all people must, they will still get in on the life that God has given in Jesus. Everything in the world is about to be wrapped up, so take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it, 
If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus, and he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything, encores to the end of time. Oh, yes. This is the word of God. Let's uh, pray together. Our Lord, thanks for these words. Uh, Thanks for this message written so long ago that still speaks to us today. Guide us and bless us and apply it to our lives through your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a lot of you know I'm really interested in the intersection of science and faith. Uh, I think that too often these are pitted as enemies, but in fact, they are friends. And I believe God is the creator of all things and that science shows us many aspects of God, but of course, uh, faith takes us even further. But what I'm learning that's so interesting right now is something that some of you may know called the neuroplasticity of the brain. The neuroplasticity of the brain, what is this? It's this amazing ability that I believe God has put inside our brains to rewire themselves. So for example, if you had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury of some sort, we now know that through certain exercises and even thinking and other uh, modalities, your brain can rewire itself around the injured site and you can learn to walk again. And you can learn to battle addiction and other things through the rewiring, the neuroplasticity of the brain. This is so fascinating. And I believe this shows us that our old habits no longer need to tyrannize us. That we can actually learn new tricks. We can learn new ways of doing things through through various exercises and, and thinking and other things. This is part of what spiritual formation is all about. Growing more into the image of Jesus Christ, the the neuroplasticity of the brain coming into full effect. Look at what Peter has to say in the first two verses and see if you can see some of this neuroplasticity at work. Peter writes, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more. Man, just stop there for a minute. This is the beauty of the incarnation. This is the beauty of God becoming a human being Jesus Christ has gone through everything that we have gone through except for the sin. And he knows what this feels like. This is so wonderful to us. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Let your mind be transformed. Learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. There's some neuroplasticity right there. Old habits changing because of suffering and Jesus' companionship in it. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. Friends, this is spiritual transformation. And the marvelous thing, the most incredible thing is that suffering is a part of it, believe it or not. Jesus in his suffering identifies with us in our suffering and Jesus' grace has the ability to transform our sufferings and to use them to make us new people, just as he was made new through his sufferings, which led to death and then life again. This theme of suffering in the Bible is a huge one, of course, but in the New Testament, get this, of all the references to suffering in the New Testament, one quarter of them are in 1 Peter. Believe it or not, one quarter of them are in 1 Peter alone. This is a book for suffering people. And their suffering was likely related to their newfound Christian faith. 
They were being looked over for promotions at work. They were being uh, fired from work. They were being ostracized from social gatherings. They were uh, just on the cusp of probably suffering physically for their faith and even being killed. That was their suffering. Ours is not like that, thankfully. Ours is more typical. We suffer for a variety of reasons. We, we get sick. We, we, we age. We become infirm. We lose loved ones. We die ourselves. We are a suffering people. But let's not over-spiritualize one form versus the other because in it, Jesus Christ is present. And that's the marvel of the incarnation, that Jesus is with us in all forms of suffering. Some of us uh, struggle with anxiety. I know I've struggled with that in the past. Some of you have too. A lot of people in our world are struggling with anxiety because of the pandemic and other things. And we can feel guilty sometimes as though our suffering is, is uh, somehow indicative of a, of a weak faith. And I like how, how C.S. Lewis addresses this in this quote from Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He writes, some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I don't agree at all. They are afflictions. They are sufferings, not sins. Like all afflictions, like all sufferings we go through, they are, if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. Does not every movement in the passion write large some common element in the sufferings of our race? Think about Jesus on the last night of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about him pleading in anxiety before the Father saying, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was so anxious he sweat blood. What the, the point is that all of our sufferings are taken up into Christ. Whether we're being persecuted for our faith or going through ordinary human suffering, all of this is taken up in Jesus Christ, redeemed and sanctified because of who he is. And our sufferings can be used of him to transform us. Christ carries our sufferings. Christ redeems our sufferings. Christ transforms our sufferings and is able to use them to shape us. Suffering can have a spiritually purifying effect in our lives. It can wean us off of our self-centeredness, as 1 Peter says, and move us toward one another in sacrificial service. I uh, received, we received in our family some bad news recently. My mother has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. It, uh, we think, started in a, her lung and moved to her brain and uh, maybe in her liver. But my mom is facing possible um, chemotherapy soon, but it won't cure her. And my dad is 87 and he's working around the clock to support my mom and he's wearing out. And Wednesday I'm going to go see them. I'll be with them for several days. And you could pray for, for us. Um, but the most remarkable thing is that when I talk to my dad, he seems different. He said, you know, I've reached the stage of my faith in my life and my marriage where I realize it's not about me. Right now I can put the focus on your mom completely and God is helping me to do that. And he said, I sense the Lord's partnership in this. And I'm seeing this tr transformation in my dad's life. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing thing and it's humbling to me and it's inspiring to me. Uh, and, I, and this is the, what we're talking about, this suffering under the grace of Jesus Christ can transform us and it can be redemptive. So this is, I think, the first lesson we have today. Let's continue on in verses three to five. Peter writes, 
you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life. That is a, the Greek behind that's a Gentile way of life. You've already put your time in, in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Profligate means licentious. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. I don't know if you know my story of coming to faith. I'll tell it to you briefly, but I think it applies. I grew up in a nominally Christian home. That means that we went to church maybe once or twice a year at Christmas and Easter. And um, my mom and dad come from very different traditions. Dad is a pietistic German Lutheran. Mom's a liberal Congregationalist. And we never could decide on a church tradition. So what we did is we learned our bedtime prayers and table grace in English and in German. And uh, my dad would read my sister and me uh, children's Bible stories at bedtime. And so I knew that God was real. Uh, and I believed that. But as I got to high school, I actually met real Christians who were making a decisive choice for Jesus. And I thought, whoo, whoa, I'm not ready to do that. Still a few things I want to do, things I know that won't align with that. And so my prayer at that point had been, God, just be patient with me. Be patient with me. Uh, someday I'll come to you. I know I will. And so off I went into all that late high school and early college has to offer. And here's a picture of me and my fraternity uh, celebrating as we often did. And some of you are looking at me there and you're saying, man, he has not aged a day. <laughs> um, but here's the point. I, I finally met Christians in college and my fraternity was one of them. And I, 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 I couldn't dismiss them. They, they were thoughtful. They were funny, they were talented, they were gifted, and they loved Jesus Christ. And so as a result, I, uh, pieces came together and I gave my life to Jesus Christ in the fraternity house at Berkeley and made a, a decisive change to live as a Christian. And so this text was really important to me then. And as I look back, this is what we're talking about. A decisive change in our behavior that we live differently for Jesus. How are we doing with that? I'm haunted by that, that old story someone said that if you lived in a non-Christian country where people persecuted Christians for their faith and they arrested you as a Christian and brought you to trial, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Are our lives different because of Jesus? And do we live that way in the world? This is a challenge for us. Let's continue on. Peter, at the latter half of our text today gives us four practical applications. Four practical applications. And I uh, would like to sort of unpack those with you. The first one is this. Stay wide awake in prayer. Or as the NIV puts it, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Prayer is a mystery, isn't it? We wonder when we pray, does it change us or does it change the world? And the answer is yes. As we align ourselves with God in close communion through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, God is able to use our prayers mysteriously to affect things in our world. We don't understand exactly how. But as we do that, we ourselves, aligned with God and praying for our world, are transformed. And this is, of course, part of the neuroplasticity thing I mentioned earlier. Why do we stay sober? 
Why do we stay disciplined? So we can align cleanly and clearly with God so that we're alert and can discern and know how to pray. This is why we do that. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane once again when he was praying and in suffering. What did he tell his disciples? He said, keep watch and pray. This is what we're talking about. Be alert. Be alert so that you may pray. How's it with you? Are you you able to live this way? To be alert, to be sober and disciplined for prayer? This is the spiritual discipline we take on and why we try to have devotions and quiet times and prayer exercises. It's why our prayer ministry exists in this church, to help us to draw close to God in prayer. Stay wide awake in prayer. That's the first point. Let's go to the second. Most of all, Peter says, love each other, love each other. Let's read this in a greater fullness. Let's go to the next slide. Most of all, Peter writes, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. The NIV says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Friends, love is the cardinal Christian virtue. Love is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment to love God with all our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is the first of the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love is what is meant to mark our lives as Christians to the watching world. They will know we are Christians by our love. Love is first and foremost. That's why Peter says, most of all, focus on love. But then it has this bit about covering over a multitude of sins. Now, what is this about? Well, number one, we could think that maybe love uh, issues as we love other people, somehow God attributes that love and and then allows us to be forgiven for that sin. And that's not entirely off the mark because if you remember Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus told the parable of the sheep and the goats, what did he say? He said, in that you have done this to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, in that you have loved them practically, uh, you then are my sheep. You will come and be blessed of the Father. So there's something to that. It could be that as we love and we grow in love, we grow, grow in holiness. And then uh, love overtakes, it consumes, subsumes sin in our lives. Or perhaps it's just simply this, this quote from Scott McKnight. I like it. Let's take a look. The community that loves one another is able to forgive one another more rapidly when minor issues arise. Friends, how are we doing with this? I think if you're like me, you know that you're worn down by the pandemic and you have felt exhausted and depleted and it's easy to be crabby and to be short-tempered with those you love and care about in your home. It's easy to bring that mentality into the church. And I, I, I think what we're being challenged with here is to pursue love, to pursue love in this way that will issue in forgiveness and in long suffering together. This is a challenge we face. Okay, number one, stay wide awake in prayer. Number two, most of all, love each other. Then number three, offer hospitality without grumbling. Or as the message puts it in this next slide, be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. I'm not sure Eugene Peterson got it 100% right here. um, Because... I believe the, the origin of this verse is, is for the Christian community. And the way he's translated, it sounds like it's simply, you know, uh, care to the wider community beyond the walls of the church. And it could be. 
But I think it begins with the church. Um, and that's why it says to one another. We're to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's unpack this. I'm going to show you these two words. Let's look at the words hospitality and grumbling for a moment. Hospitality is the word in Greek, philozania. Philozania is actually a word you know because it's in two parts. Philo means to love. That's like Philadelphia, love of the brothers and sisters. Philo means to love. Xenia is the foreigner or stranger in our midst. You know the word xenophobic? So philozenia is literally love of strangers. And this probably had to do with the early church with new Christians coming into town needing a place to stay. And uh, Christians were urged to open their homes to them because remember, they didn't have Best Western or whatever. So they had to open their homes and show hospitality. And then they were to do it without the word grumbling. Gonguzmos. Let's all say it together. Gonguzmos. It just sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Gonguzmos. The word grumbling is actually an interesting word because that is the Greek translation in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Bible. It's the word of the Israelites who grumbled against God in the wilderness. Remember that? They grumbled, they complained, they were upset that life was hard and they grumbled against God and Moses and Aaron and others. And this was the word, gonguzmos. The point I think we need to realize here is that grumbling in the Old and New Testament is a sin. It's a sin. And God dealt harshly in the Old Testament with this sin. And we need to be careful because grumbling can afflict us. And I think it's a besetting sin of midlife and older. Because in midlife and older, we, uh, we start to lose our uh, freedoms and our faculties and, and we don't have the energy we used to and the world is changing and the younger generations don't seem to acknowledge us or respect us and it's easy to grumble. And it's a sin. It's okay to, be, uh, to, to, to do it in a constructive way, but grumbling, grumbling is a sin. And we need to be careful about it. How are we doing as a church? How are we doing with this? It's something for us to, to think about. Are we grumbling? What can we do differently? Because grumbling is a sin. Let's go on to the fourth point. Use your spiritual gift to serve others. Let's, let's go to the next slide and read it in a little more context. Peter writes, be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. And NIV, I think, is a little clearer at this point. Each of you should use whatever gift, charisma in Greek, you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This is what we call the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, the charismata in Greek, the word charismatic, charisma, these are words derived from that. Spiritual gifts are basically this. If you're a Christian, God has poured into you one or more gifts. These are gifts of service or gifts of helps or uh, many different kinds of gifts so that you can use your gift to serve others in the, Christ, in the body of Christ. If you want to know more about this, the Romans 12 is great to read, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and then today's passage. I checked in with Shirley Davis the other day, a member of our church staff. She focuses on equipping us for ministry. And she told me, reminded me, that there are 23 or more spiritual gifts listed in the Bible. 23 or more. Which one do you have? 
There are gifts of, of helps and gifts of prophecy and gifts of administration and gifts of leadership and gifts of, of teaching and tongues and interpretation of tongues, etc., etc. What's your gift? If you're not sure, we have a website, our church website. Under the uh, word serve, you can go to this page. It's called Find Your Sweet Spot. And it will help you determine your spiritual gift. And associated with this is this particular website. Take it down if you're interested. Youruniquedesign.net. You go to this website and there's a 69 question, very rapid spiritual gifts test. And just for fun, I took it yesterday and it'll print out your, uh, your results. And I'm just gonna share with you my top five gifts. And these were not a surprise to me because I've done this many times. It was just very confirming. Number one, gift of knowledge. Number two, teaching. Number three, shepherding. Number four, discernment. And number five, exhortation. I want to encourage you, if you haven't done this recently, go to this website, youruniquedesign.net, and take that inventory and see where it leads you and see if you can find your place of service. Because when you do, you're going to be totally excited about it because you're gonna be energized, people are gonna be blessed. This is, this is the way to go, so please consider doing that. Okay, so four things Peter's given to us. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other. Offer hospitality without grumbling, and then use your spiritual gift to serve others. Friends, when we do this, the church is enriched. The church begins to flourish. We begin to know God's joy and the world begins to benefit and the church itself as well. And most importantly, and we'll close with this verse, God is glorified. Our text today ends in doxology after all. Peter writes, that way, as we do these things, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus and he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything, encores to the end of time. Oh, yes. What a great way to close our text. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, whether they're at home, online, or whether they're here in our sanctuary. I ask that you would take whatever we've shared together today and apply it to their lives and help them to be transformed and to grow as your disciples and to know your joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.